Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 63. You know, we're all about making connections on this show. We look at AI from so many angles that you might think of the show as a recreation of the way that neural nets are trained to learn something new by showing it a zillion examples of a cat, and then it learns what a cat is. Maybe that's how we're learning what AI is. Although AI is far more brittle at learning by example than we are, which is why it's only currently good for learning what things like cats are and not what things like AI are. But it's getting better all the time. Today's guest is Satish Sankapandi. He is head of data science for Orbital Global in Suffolk, England, and he is the mastermind behind Orbital's Virtuturi digital avatar. That name comes from a contraction of virtual and Turing. So we're going to be talking about AI customer service agents. But that's not all Satish has done. Let's find out more as we get into the interview. Satish, welcome to the show. It was really great to meet you and speak to you. It's a really great opportunity. I'm very excited to speak with you. Thanks. So you are in a position at Orbital Global in the United Kingdom. Is that correct? What are you doing for them? So I work as a head of data science for Orbital Global and a company called Vituri. Basically, what we do is we have lots of AI products that's going into predominantly healthcare domain from um, digital assistance. Then we have a little bit of dashboard projects, which would help plan and deliver any sort of health care campaign. And currently, the project we are working on is funded by Melinda Gates Foundation. And we are working with Ramand and government to actually improve their health micro-planning and delivery of services. For an example, currently, we are doing COVID vaccinations. So how you can increase their coverage and reduce health inequity in Rwanda using AI. And is that using Virturi or is it another mechanism? Yeah, Virturi is a digital assistant, so it can help you answering questions just by typing into a freeform text box. So the whole application is on optimization and planning. So it's actually bringing various different data sources and trying to predict, for an example, which regions you have to target first because the disease outbreak is high. Or if, for an example, you have this certain types of vaccine where they require cold storage. So what are the optimal positions to place this whole storage so they can actually maximize coverage and also minimize the amount of cost and time spent? So that's where it is. So that's a whole dashboard. And it is for various different stakeholders from Ministry of Health, for the director level, to the program managers who actually plan them. Mm -hmm. and to other managers who are doing logistics and others. So I want to back up to a higher level here and looking at this because my main question when I hear this is about mm -hmm. how you can apply AI in real-world medical situations reliably so that if you were in the United States, for instance, you wouldn't be facing possible ruinous malpractice suits for making a mistake and get an idea of the context there, because this is fairly new. And you've been talking about Virturi, which I believe is coined as a portmanteau of virtual and Turing. And it's, as you described, an avatar. 
And mm-hmm. I've been kind of thinking of it as uh, Dr. Siri or Nurse Alexa, if that's not getting too gender specific. Yeah. Yeah. It's an avatar. It's something you see on a screen. Do you talk with it verbally and does it answer back that way? Yes. So Viduri has a virtual element, which is an avatar. And the idea is to create a hyper-realistic avatar so that you actually feel like you're talking to a real human. So basically, you go in there, you just speak to it. You can also type if you want. Just speak or type to it and lots of things happen and then you get an answer back. So one of the difference between Dr. Google or some other platform is this is very niche. It doesn't work on everything. It just works on a particular topic and is not a diagnostic tool and only gives you advice or information on things. For an example, COVID, if I want to say you take a COVID vaccine, you know, you can ask questions about, okay, my arm is sore or what do I do and all those things. And one of the advantage of Vittori is it's highly engaging. And we know from our research that if you see by seeing a video or interacting with someone online, your engagement or your information recall is very, very high. Or the knowledge transfer mm. is so high. So that's the reason why we have Vittori there. And also it can help with the loneliness epidemic that is widespread with elderly adults across the globe. So this can play a vital role. Even saying to the elders that every morning, have you had your tea? It makes a huge difference. So in the way, you know, it's highly engaging and it also can transfer information accurately and quickly so that it stays with someone quite long. And also, you know, you can have natural conversation. It's not like you have a pre-written text and it has to match. It's not keyword matching or anything. So it's very natural, like you speak to another human being. So if I go back decades in the history of AI being used in medicine, there was a system called Mycin Mm -hmm. that John McCarthy took apart in a rhetorical way because he said this is not ready for use. If, for instance, a patient has a cholera infection, it will recommend a course of treatment that will result in the patient dying. And that was one of the things that precipitated another AI winter. Now, here we are, fast forward, we're in this situation where you're using Verturi and things have changed. What were the challenges that you faced in engineering this and getting it accepted to be used? Yeah, so... I want to start with saying it's not diagnostic, it's only information providing tools. So that takes out a huge burden or a challenge out of it because you know if it's going to be diagnostic, then you're actually kind of replacing a GP or a health professional in that sense. And it is very, very difficult to do. And I would say that's why most of the systems fail because they try to do diagnostic element. And there's so much of confounding variables that actually create, you know, a treatment for malaria is different for a different person because of age or BMI and everything. But with Vittori, we are not focusing on diagnostic. We're only focusing on providing information or signposting to different elements. The huge challenge here is actually understanding because, you know, it's a free-form, natural conversation you can have with Vittori. So actually understanding those nuances and how do you make computer to understand that? People can say, ask the same thing in various different ways, and you cannot train the AI system with various different ways. It's impossible because, you know, I can be someone now and maybe, you know, after later, then I can ask the same question in a very, very different way. So how do you actually make it understand those differences or variations of the questions? So that was a very big challenge. And as a kind of ML engineering, machine learning engineering, then actually putting that into production, and it has to be really, really fast. 
when someone asks a question, the system shouldn't wait for five minutes before it gives an answer. And that's not engaging at all. So how do you make it quicker? So mm. the response time has to be fast. It has to be accurate. And also we have a visual element, which is another thought. So all of these things has to come together. And there are various different microservices running and all of those things have to play in harmony so that you get those three things that I just mentioned. So those are the biggest challenge, I would say. So we're talking about natural language processing. And how do you train the model? What is the core engine here that's learning how to interpret the human words and how do you train it? So as a very simple understanding of how it works is teaching a computer to understand language has been long studied. One of the biggest breakthrough was actually what is called as vectorial representation of words. So for each word, how do you add numbers? For a word, say COVID, there are some numbers associated with it. But those numbers are not just any number. You can't pick any number because these numbers have an association with other words. So in a sentence, it makes a very big difference. So for an example, I lost my cell phone. It's different from I was reading a book in a cell, which is a prison cell. Even though the cell was there in two sentences, but it means a very different thing. So there's a context around a word. There was a biggest breakthrough was actually trying to understand the context around each of those words and actually giving those numbers. It's called a vectorial representation or an embedding. That's where it all started. People are trying to make this vectorial representation as good as possible so that it can actually understand kind of semantics of the sentence. So that's the rudimentary aspect of natural language processing, I would say. And then taking that, so once you have the numbers, then the computers can understand the numbers, you know, and then you can feed it to any machine learning system you want. You want machine learning, deep learning. So for Victory, we have a hybrid or a hierarchical architecture, which uses a low-level, straightforward, simplistic regression methodologies. And also we have very complex deep learning methodologies at the end. It works in a way that making sure that the information is accurate, the information given to the user is accurate, and also we have the balance of speed. So that's how it works. So there's understanding what the year mm-hmm. person is saying, and then mm-hmm. you've got, well, there's telling what they said. We've turned their sounds into text, but now we have to interpret that. We have to yeah. put some meaning on that, mm-hmm. and then you have to turn that into a question, or then you have to infer from that what to say to them. Are they asking questions, or are they making requests, or what is the person saying? Yes, definitely. That's exactly what the machine learning algorithm is going to learn. So it's actually the first step is converting this to numbers and then, you know, actually teaching them what numbers are what, you know, is it a request or whether this is a question. And if it's just a question, you know, what kind of question is that? And the other thing is, you know, do you have an answer for it? First of all, you know, there might not mm-hmm. be answers for it. How do you answer that? So that's also a bigger problem. So taking that, understanding that and actually figuring out what it is. So that's a big challenge there, yeah. Right. Now, you referred to how it's only operating in certain narrow domains, like it might be COVID, but there are other ones. Within any one of those narrow domains, it's much easier to answer if you know that you're only talking about COVID. There's a limited number of things that the person could be saying and a limited number of responses that you can make. But do you have to first determine what domain you're in or is that predetermined when the conversation starts? It's all automatic, to be honest. You know, it's it's all, say say for an example, you have various different machine learning algorithms sitting behind it. If you're asking a question about COVID, it automatically recognizes that it's based on COVID and it can give you answers on COVID. There are things like if it's asking something about planet Mars or you know anything like that, it doesn't have an answer. So 
we have to figure that out as well you know how do we detect it because the machine learning is only trained on certain kinds of data and this is out of scope or out of the mind question so how do you detect that so that's also another another system that is working continuously trying to understand what exactly are they saying now you were saying you went to construct a hyper realistic avatar with this there's mm-hmm. a face to Vertura. Is yep. there more than one face or is it just the same face? We can have more than one face, yes, definitely. We can have more than one face. At the moment, we just yep. have one. That's only for uh, start, but we can have any number of faces we require. Can you compare the way that's done to some of the other avatars that people might be familiar with, like Samsung's Neo or IPsoft's Amelia? Do you know if you're doing that the same way or differently or how is it done? The biggest difference I would say is, you know, ours is an audio-driven avatar. And I don't think many software companies are doing it. It's completely audio-driven. So usually what people do is they do deep fakes, so which requires a video. So you have to have a video and then, or a reference video, and also you have a video which you want to translate into. And then that's how the deep fakes work. But what we are doing is there's no face at all. And then it's all driven by audio. So even though they type in a text, they can convert that into audio or vice versa. And then it is all driven. And what happens is there's a speech synthesizer, which is trying to understand what the speech is or the, what the audio signals is. And then this is given into a deep learning model, which will convert all those things and it will just map out different actions for uh, different points on your face. And then it just is a freak start. And then we render that. And this has to work really, really fast. Is the building block of the facial movements something called a viseme? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for a face, there are various different musculoskeletal joints. Whenever you're speaking something or you're showing some emotion, there are certain things that happens to your muscles and your bones. So these points are being already mapped by various different research literatures, and you can find them all over the face, all over the world. And taking that and then actually converting or finding audio signals that can control those points is what this whole subject is about. And Yzeems are one of those things. Yzeems from the audio signals is mapped to the face, and then you render that so that you get a hyperrealistic motion. So is this in the same class as deep fakes? There's a famous video now from a few years ago of mm-hmm. Barack Obama, mm-hmm. and it's driven by the audio, in this case, of Jordan Peele saying some things that mm-hmm. is facsimile of Barack Obama's voice. And then the video of Barack Obama looks like it's saying these things and it was driven by what his voice was. Is that the basic technology that you're using or have I got it wrong? Yeah, I think the deep fakes are completely different because deep fakes, you require someone not just speaking, but also a video of that person. Like say for an example, I can speak, but mm-hmm. my video has to be recorded. And I can convert that, but I can overlay anyone's voice to it. It's very different. What we are doing is you don't require any video at all. You just have to send the audio signals in. That's it. So the input is audio signal, output is avatar. But whereas in the deep fake, you should have video input, video Hmm. and audio input to it. And then you get a video output or an avatar output. So does the avatar's image synthesis, does that have an underlying model of musculoskeletal physiognomy and kinematics? Yes, of course. It's all been studied very well. And what you have to do is you have to connect the linguistic element and then the muscle. So which, for what sound, what muscle activates. So that's the whole study here. Right. It's not straightforward. Yeah, no. That's a huge amount of work to go to. 
Mm -hmm. And so for someone who's thinking, was that necessary? What value do you add to the conversation from creating that hyper-realistic avatar when the conversation could have been a disembodied voice like Siri or Google? Why go to that much work to add the face? Yeah, so actually there's a big research which is done over with uh, 10,000 people or so. So they compare text versus audio versus image or video to see how much information is retained or how engaging is how long the users were with the screen. And what they found was they found about 70 to 80% more people can recall information and it seems they know they can get engaged. Mm. This is very, very similar to one of the works that we did with MySpira, which is a asthma application that we created from Orbital. It uses something called augmented reality. So it's a gamified way of teaching people how to use the asthma inhaler correctly. And what we found was up to two to four times, people can actually understand the process of using asthma inhalers properly. So I think mm. it's about the information retention and also engagement. Right. And if you take older adults, this becomes very, very necessary because it creates a different feeling or a different sensation for that because you think that they're actually speaking to a real human being. So you've jumped the uncanny valley. Kind of, yeah, that's where we are. I mean, there are little giveaways, you know, for certain sounds, there are certain giveaways that you can say that's an avatar. But for others, it's very, very good. We've ever been thinking to have a label that to say that you're actually speaking with an avatar because people shouldn't get, right. get a wrong idea. Same here, the uh, Google business assistant, whatever they call it, automated mm -hmm. telephone system has to tell you that it's an automated system when it calls you and it's yes. called me a couple of times. But it's very good. Do you customize the look and sound of the avatar according to who it's talking to? Yeah, at the moment, the functionality is not available yet. But the idea is like it's transferable. All these things are transferable. So you can transfer it to any ethnicity you want. Even we can let uh, users to pick their hairstyle of the avatar they like to or who they want to speak to, male, mm -hmm. female, anything they want to do. And also they can also change the voice of the avatar that's speaking out. And is there any effective computing in this? Does it either recognize emotion of who it's talking to or generate any depending on context? At the moment, it doesn't do. It can detect emotions from the voice, basically. But what we can do is we can incorporate the camera of their device, of the user's device, and then we can also detect those emotions. Problem is privacy. Privacy is the biggest concern. So hmm. that's the reason why we didn't go into camera. But camera can provide lots of useful insights as to what the user emotion is than the voice, of course. Yeah, but there's an element of privacy there. And that's why, you know, we said we are not going there. But it's, it's quite possible to do it. This is not the only AI application you've done in medicine. You were describing something before we started the interview about a project that would measure the likelihood of people falling accidentally. Can you describe that? So in the UK, I'm just speaking about UK, but it's a worldwide problem. One in three adults who are over 60 years at least fall once a year. And that can be really fatal at some times. People have lost their hip, hip fractures, hip injuries. And the other thing is psychological effect. If they once fall, they always have a fear of falling again. So which means they are not mobile at all. And that actually impedes their independence. And that is going to have a worse effect on them. And then they're going to fall, anyways fall. And it's costing a lot of money, about $2 billion is spent mm. just in the UK. So this is an important problem. Yeah, it's a huge problem and it's a worldwide problem and it's been well recognized. And that's for over 60 years and over 80 years, one in every two adults fall. So it's a huge, huge problem. There are two big elements of false risk that can happen. So one is an environmental hazard. So that's to do with trips. 
any hazards they have in their home, like loose wire or loose carpet, bad lighting and all those things. Those are environmental effects. There are lots of interventions or there are lots of things that are being developed by government and other agencies such as Age UK and other uh, Nice UK and all those people. They have given a little questionnaire to check if their house is clean and uh, they are free from environmental hazards. But the biggest problem, I think, is the intrinsic effect of what is happening within them. A loss of balance because of poor muscle strength. The other thing is their gait. There may be an issue with their gait. All these things are intrinsic and these are all very nuanced to find at a very, very early stage. So that's very, very difficult to detect. Currently, what they do is the health professionals have a questionnaire which they actually go through or they ask people to walk and they see it with their naked eye and they just score it. But it's very, very subjective and depends on what time of the day you're doing and the white coat effect and all those things come into play. So you basically did the scoring with AI. Yes, exactly. So you ask the users to wear the sensors and ask them to do the same protocol that they've been doing, like walking, sitting down and all those things. This algorithm can detect all those nuances that the healthcare professionals can't see with their eye. I mean, even at a very, very early stage, we can just detect that someone is going to fall soon or they are in the slope of detriment or their health is declining in some way. So it is better to take an intervention. It's just a screening tool. It's not saying that, okay, you have this problem, but it can give you different variables like where the problem might be, whether it's on the lower body or upper body. It can also detect how you see your heels tight and everything. That could be a problem for someone. Maybe they have to change their shoe and everything. So it can give you all those things. When I did my PhD, I kind of got about 90 different variables that you can actually see where the changes are happening. It's doing this by observing data about how the person is moving and interpreting that. Yes. Was it a supervised learning model? Did you train it up on human assessments or how did it learn? Yeah, so uh, it's a supervised model. Of course, it's a supervised model. So what we did was we had folders and non-folders. And then we just gave everything to a deep learning system. That's one way of doing it. Give it to a deep learning system and it's a black box, okay? So you get whether they're going to fall in the future or not, or how high is their risk. You can get that. Another way to do is, you know, use a traditional regression analysis or anything. But there, what you can do is it's much more interpretable because you know what sort of variables you are getting it out. Like say, what is their walking speed? What is the range of movement on their arms? You can exactly get, and you can just simply say whether it is in the normal range or not. Because you can get the same data from a normal people who are healthy or, you know, who are of the same age, but you think they are healthy because we have done all those further assessments or detail assessment via a gold standard method. So there's a reference and you can just simply say that, okay, they're going to fall because I can see lots of red in these variables because it's out of range or out of normal range. So that's an idea there. So you can do, there are a couple of ways of doing it. It seems to me there are many, many problems that you could apply that same model to. For instance, uh, cognitive mm-hmm. impairment yep. is something which, at least here in Canada, the tests for that are expensive mm-hmm. because they have to be human-administered cognitive tests repeated over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that couldn't be done by an AI. I think that would be easy. Yeah. That is the same kind of training process. You're talking about falling in one case and you're talking about brain cognitive failure in another. Do you see that kind of application taking off for what you've demonstrated here? Absolutely. I think we have one project that is about to start with an orbital itself. It's for actually measuring brain imaging or brain problems, like something to do with their neurological problems with their brains. And how you can do that is instead of using sensors that is placed all over your body, you can just take an EEG measurement from the brain. Mm -hmm. And then you can just do the same thing, whether they are normal or abnormal. 
and then you can intervene. You can also extract many, many different measures as to, you know, say, and you can personalize or tailor the treatments based on what sort of results you're getting out of it. So which variables is out of range or it's below or above the normal range. So you can take interventions or tailored interventions on that. Uh-huh. And this can also measure the prognosis. Like say you're giving an intervention, you can also measure them, ask them to come back and see, you know, whether that intervention is actually having an effect on that person. Wow. If not, you can change it. And thank you. We have neuroscientists coming on the show in a couple of episodes, Olaf mm-hmm. Krigelson, and he looks at EEGs all day. So wow. I'll take it up with him. Just to jump here in the remaining time, you also have done something with a fascinating title of the Earworm Project. And earworms, I think of it being those annoying jingles like the, I don't know, banana splits theme or something that you can't get out of your head once you've heard it. What was this about? It was an interesting problem. And they want to study um, neurological ability or neurological levels with people and what is the connection to earworms. So the idea is like, if you can repeat the earworms in the same tempo as the original song, then you have a neurological system in your brain. Then if you can't, it might be a problem. It might not be a problem for someone. But if you can repeat it in the same tempo, it's good. If it not, there will be lots of detailed assessment or further assessment is required for that person. There are some health issues with it, you know, let's call it that. So how do you actually find out whether whatever the hearing is on the same tempo? That's a simple question. So the way we do is, so I was using accelerometers to actually find out elderly people falling. So we use the same accelerometer and ask them to wear it in their hand and tap it for the tempo. So what are they hearing? Whenever they hear the earworms, we ask them to tap it. So that is the tempo that we have to get. So I was the person who actually wrote those algorithms to figure out those tempos from the tapping because some people can tap it slow or really, really hard or it can decline, it can go up. So that's a big signal processing element there. And we kind of figured out how to actually get that and standardize all the whole algorithms as to, you know, how to figure out this tempo. And it was very, very helpful. You saw from the paper and it was how good it was. So this experiment is playing subjects, I don't know, commercial jingles and they're cursing, but you're then measuring how well they can reproduce what they have heard, how much it's stuck in their head. Yes. And what's the application of that? Yes, it has lots of health applications to it. I was only involved in the algorithm side of it. I was not involved in the health aspect of it. Mm-hmm. It was a research that is done by Goldsmiths University and they didn't know how to do the tempo thing. And we came up with this idea that we can use an accelerometer and we can do it. Mm. I am not aware of this thing used anywhere, but I know it has lots of health benefits if you can reproduce a tempo of the song that you heard earlier or the jingles you heard. It relates to memory impairment, Mm. cognitive reasoning and stuff like that. So it's connected to all those things. How it can be applied and all those things is still unknown. This is more pure research at the moment in neuroscience, but fascinating stuff. It's just one of those things that, who would have come up with that? So that's really interesting to hear about. Now, just drawing to a close here, where are your efforts going next? Is it further development of Verturi? Do you have another project? What's your next challenge? We are definitely further developing Verturi as to increase or uh, improve its emotional intelligence. So that's where the whole thing is going. And also there are certain giveaways in the hyper-realistic avatar generation to certain words and things like that. So that's where we are moving with Verturi. But there are a huge number of projects 
as I mentioned, one was actually figuring out their brain activity or how bad their brain was injured or anything after they had been in an injury or so. So that's one project. The other thing is we are working really on optimization and planning for healthcare deliveries in underdeveloped countries or low to medium income countries. So that's a very big project that we're working with Belinda Gates Foundation and Ministry of Health in various different countries. So the plan currently is we have got this tool working for Ministry of Health for Rwanda. But the next thing is scale up to 74 countries for mm. LMICs, the low to medium income countries. So these are some of the projects that we're currently working on. There are potentially so many other things. Wow. There's projects on pharmacovigilance to identifying adverse events from the text to name few. There's quite a lot of things going on. <laughs> and these are all fascinating applications of AI that demonstrating just how it's changing things on an accelerating scale. How mm -hmm. would anyone listening who wants to find out more about the things you've just been talking about, how can they learn more about those or what you're doing? So they can go to their website, just www.orbitalglobal.com or you can just contact me from my email address, which is satishas at orbitalmedia.com. It's been fantastic. A real pleasure having you on the show, Satish. Good luck with what you do with Verterian. Let's hope that that gets picked up in even more markets and that work expanded. That's the end of the interview. And I think it was very good for getting a finger on the pulse of where we are with conversational avatars at the moment and how they are getting out there. Orbital doesn't have as much money as Google, and yet here they are doing something with avatars that only a few years ago would have required Google-class resources to tackle. To update you on one of our guests, Professor Ryan Abbott and Dr. Stephen Thaler have been granted a patent for a novel food container design on behalf of its AI inventor, Dabus, the device for autonomous bootstrapping of unified sentience. South Africa granted Dabus the patent, despite prior denial by the US, UK, and European patent offices. You heard from Ryan when he was my guest two months ago, but the patent was only just awarded, the first patent to be granted in the name of an AI. Ryan wrote to me about this latest development and said that they had a ruling in their favor two days later in Australia as well. He said, and I quote, the consequences are that this is the first jurisdiction to allow an AI-generated invention made without a traditional human inventor to be protected. This means that the system will appropriately encourage people to make and use AI to generate socially valuable innovation rather than restricting the use of AI in R&D. It also means that, at present, an AI-generated invention can only be protected in certain jurisdictions and not others, which presents a real challenge for global commerce and innovations not restricted to national borders, end quote. For more discussion about this, go to episodes 50 and 51. In today's news ripped from the headlines of AI, we've got research with amazing and disturbing implications. We're going to spend a while on this. In their archive.org paper, 22 researchers from 15 institutions in four countries showed how machine learning trained on chest x-rays, mammograms, limb x-rays, and cervical spine x-rays could predict the race, white, black, or Asian, from those images with usually much better than 90% accuracy. This is not something a human radiologist can do. They then added high-pass filters to the images and trained the models again, and the models maintained performance well beyond the point that the, quote, degraded images contained no recognizable structures, 
to the human co-authors and radiologists, it was not even clear that the image was an X-ray at all, end quote. If you look at the paper, those images look like plain gray rectangles. And the AI was still able to figure out the race. I'm going to quote them some more, a lot more, because it's not necessary to add interpretation or drama to what they said. They spell it out in the paper. Begin quote. These findings suggest that not only is racial identity trivially learned by AI models, but that it appears likely that it will be remarkably difficult to debias these systems. We could only reduce the ability of the models to detect race with extreme degradation of the image quality to the level where we would expect task performance to also be severely impaired and often well beyond that point that the images are undiagnosable for a human radiologist. Overall, we were unable to isolate image features that are responsible for the recognition of racial identity in medical images, either by spatial location in the frequency domain or caused by common anatomic and phenotype confounders associated with racial identity, end quote. So one thing they did was to get the models to isolate the areas of the images where the racial information was strongest and block out those areas. Didn't help. So why is this important? Well, medical institutions want to be able to process patient data without racial identity so as to avoid bias and to use it in further research and statistical studies and so forth. This paper shows how hard that is. Quoting again, One commonly proposed method to mitigate bias is through the selective removal of features that encode protected attributes such as racial identity while retaining as much information useful for the clinical task as possible, in effect making the machine learning models Colorblind. While this approach has already been criticized as being ineffective in some circumstances, our work further suggests that such an approach may not succeed in medical imaging simply for the fact that racial identity information appears to be incredibly difficult to isolate. We strongly recommend that all developers, regulators, and users who are involved with medical image analysis consider the use of deep learning models with extreme caution. In the setting of X-ray and CT imaging data, patient racial identity is readily learnable from the image data alone, generalizes to new settings, and may provide a direct mechanism to perpetuate or even worsen the racial disparities that exist in current medical practice. End quote. Wow, what can I add to that? It just goes to show how many surprises AI can spring on us, and we're still in the very early stages with it. Next week, I'll be talking with Amit Gupta, who is the founder of SudoWrite, an AI-powered creative writing app that I got to try and which produced some riveting and astounding results. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.